Let me break it down into these parts. In part one of Article 8, which I'm titling it the age-old spirit and the spirit age, point two, there were in that slide five marks enumerated of what's happening in what's called the spirit age, the church age. Point three, the effectual working of the Spirit, and point four, the Spirit's work being bound to the Son, to the gospel of Christ. Let's just take these, uh, each one at a time. I'll go back to the affirmation so you can see where I'm getting each point. The age-old Spirit and the Spirit age. We believe, point one says, that the Holy Spirit has always been at work in the world. Now, a common question for Bible readers is, was the Spirit at work in the Old Testament? If so, how? Well, that's why we're saying the age-old Spirit and the Spirit age. The answer is yes. We believe that the Holy Spirit has always, always, always been at work in the world. In fact, the second verse of the Bible. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. There you have it, right in the second verse of the Bible. Yes, the Spirit has been at work. He is eternal. Uh, Don't don't refer to the Spirit with indefinite uh, terminology. It, He is a person. He is eternal. He is God. He is from everlasting. And He has always been at work in the world. Peter tells us that when the Old Testament was written, it happened this way. Now, Chew on this. But, we, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament writings, is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's how Scripture happened. The Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Old Testament to pen what they wrote. So, culminating our our, our thought on the age-old spirit, transitioning to the spirit age, Article Article 8.1 says, Yet when Christ had made atonement for sin and ascended to the right hand of the Father, He inaugurated a new era of the Spirit by pouring out the promise of the Father on His church, Pentecost. So yes, something changed, but it wasn't the first ever arrival of the Holy Spirit in the world. It's a new epoch in redemptive history. God is signaling the end of the ages through the ascension of Christ and through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, upon the church. So the New Testament says... The Lord Jesus said, Behold, this is the day he rose from the dead, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay into the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's why the affirmation said the promise of the Father. That's the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, we read concerning Jesus, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, the ascended Christ, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. 
This is the inauguration of the spirit age with the Old, Old Testament prophets spoke about repeatedly. Joel explicitly speaks of what happened at the day of Pentecost. So that's the age-old spirit and the spirit age. So what's the Holy Spirit doing in this age? Well, he's doing a lot of things, and I'm under no delusion this is exhaustive, but our affirmation lists five things. He's giving, opening, revealing, manifesting, and fulfilling. Here's where I get that. We believe that the newness of the era, this era, is marked by the unprecedented mission of the Spirit to glorify the crucified and risen Christ. How's he doing it? Giving disciples greater power to preach. Opening the hearts of hearers that they can see Christ and believe. Revealing the beauty of Christ in the Word. Transforming Christians from glory to glory. Manifesting himself, how? In spiritual gifts among the church for the upbuilding of the body. And five, fulfilling every new covenant promise to create and preserve a purified people. This is what the Holy Spirit is mainly doing today. So you could ask yourself, am I a spirit-filled follower of Christ, well, here you go. Giving power, this is the first of the five, to preach the gospel of the glory of Christ. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power for what? To be my witnesses, near and far, Jerusalem, concentric circles, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is the power of the Holy Spirit today. He is also opening the hearts of people who hear the Spirit-filled gospel message of Jesus. He's opening people's hearts to believe. I have prayed that it would happen today uh, in the classes and then grow and in the service to follow. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabric, a worshiper of God, was listening, listening to what? Listening to Paul preach the gospel, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord here is the Holy Spirit. You can't do that by yourself. The Holy Spirit has to open your heart to believe. John 3 the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You don't control him. He is sovereign. He blows as he wills. Not only is he giving an opening, he's also revealing. He's showing something. This is his primary vocation. He loves his job. He's revealing the beauty of Christ. And he is transforming believers. This is what it is to be a spirit-filled Christ follower. You see Christ's beauty. And you are thus transformed. 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Verse 17 can be translated, that first line, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, it could be translated, now the Spirit is Lord, and where the Spirit is Lord, there is liberty. The Lordship of the Holy Spirit looks like this, seeing the glory of Christ. That's what it means to be lorded by the Spirit. And to be changed into the image that you see. That's what this is all about. 2 Corinthians 3. 
He's not only, whatever I said, giving and opening and revealing. He's also manifesting. He's showing up, especially in churches. This is how you see God today. But to each one, 1 Corinthians 12, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given, there I am, the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, I'm sure in the Q&A, we're going to be asking about continuationism and cessationism. And uh, managers, yes. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but he is manifesting himself in spiritual gifts to the church. Here's something that we often are just too numb to see and to receive. You have spiritual gifts. All of you. If you're in Christ, you have them. The Spirit gave them to you. But they're not for you. They're for us. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about. For the common good for the building up of the body of Christ. So the fifth thing the Spirit's doing is fulfilling. This is his special confirming job to the world. He is making sure that every new covenant promise that Jesus bought at the cross is coming to pass. He's fulfilling the new covenant. And he is preserving the people of God to eternity. The new covenant promise from Jeremiah reads, but this is the covenant. This is about 700 years pre-Jesus. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their hearts I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's the glorious new covenant promise. This is the core of what God is going to do in his son. This is how we will uh, see the spirit at work in the church age. And many, if not all of us, are beneficiaries of this amazing, incalculably amazing gospel promise. This is the spirit's work in us. All right, so the Holy Spirit's always been at work, but this is the special age, the, the church age, the spirit age. He's doing especially those five things. But then our affirmation said something about the effectual work of the spirit. What does that mean? Here's the way the affirmation put it in point three. We believe that apart from the effectual work of the spirit, no one would come to faith. The green is all the bad news, the yellow is the good news. Why can't you come to faith unless the Spirit works? Because you're dead, because you're hostile, because you're unable, because you love sin more than you love God. That's your problem. But 
for God's elect, the Spirit does some stuff. He triumphs over all your resistance. He wakes you up from deadness. He removes blindness. He manifests Christ. And he sees to it that Jesus becomes so compellingly beautiful to you that you can't possibly conceive of not throwing yourself into his arms by faith. That's the Spirit's work. You're all dead in trespasses and sins outside the Spirit. That's Ephesians 2. We were dead in our transgressions. You were hostile to God. You were morally unable to submit to God. You couldn't even do it. You didn't have the moral fortitude. You didn't have the fiber morally to do it. You couldn't please him. Romans 8. Because your mind was set on the flesh, you were hostile to God. And the culminating result, you could not please him. All the good stuff you did were reasons God should condemn you because you did it for the wrong motive, for your own glory, not for God, not for his glory. So that's the effectual work of the Spirit. You also saw sin to be more attractive than God. That was your fundamental problem. Mark 4, the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Jesus has a catch-all phrase. Anything that chokes out the attractiveness of Christ in your life is your problem. And, good news, God doesn't leave you there. From eternity, he sets his love on individuals and the Spirit triumphs over every resistance to the gospel in their life. Romans 6, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Thanks be to who? God. God did it. God did it. God did it. He woke you up from the dead. This isn't like you need to be resuscitated, woke up. This means like bottom of the ocean, dead, 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 dead. Cadaver, dead. Corpse, dead. Spiritually dead. You are spiritually wakened from death. death. Ezekiel has a beautiful, maybe the most beautiful illustration in Scripture in chapter 37 of this, where the prophet sees the valley of dry bones, and boom, he goes and does, uh, you know, emergency room, first world technology surgery. No. He preaches. He prophesies. He commands. And then you just see, shoo, bodies come together and flesh and sinews they're still dead so he preaches again and boom spirit invades them and gives life that's Ezekiel 37 and then Ephesians 2 we've already looked at you were dead but the passage goes on to say you are made alive by being united to the risen Christ just like the prophet laying on the corpse of the the man and then boom life came back in the spirit lays on your dead soul and gives you life he removes your blindness he shows jesus to be more beautiful than anything you could possibly imagine and he brings the grace of regeneration to your heart when people don't believe the gospel that's the beginning in whose case that's unbelievers the God of this world, that's Satan, blinds the mind of unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I'm going to skip verse 5 for a second and go down to verse 6. 
For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does through the preaching of the gospel. The same God who said, let there be light, and boom, galaxies, quasars, just infinite expanse. That God spoke in your heart by the Holy Spirit and said, look at the all-satisfying, saving beauty of Jesus. That's the Spirit's work. Finally, he binds his work to the Son. He will not work in the New Covenant age apart from elevating Christ. The Spirit, they say, is the humble person of the Trinity, the shy person of the Trinity. The minute you focus on him, he slips away. He loves to stand behind a believer, shine his Q-beam of radiant, bright light on the face of Jesus, who you can't see apart from his illuminating power. You don't turn around and look at him. He turns you to look at Christ. He binds his work to the Son. This is what point four said. The Holy Spirit does this saving work in connection with the presentation of the gospel, And then down in the middle, the Spirit, uh, I know it's hard to see, the Spirit binds His saving work to the gospel of Christ. Is that a biblical idea? Radically so. Jesus said, John 16, He will glorify me. How do you know the Holy Spirit's at work in your life? Greater love to Christ. Greater desire for Christ. Greater obedience to Christ. You could say the converse. How do you know the Holy Spirit's not at work in your life? All those things would be lacking. That's his job. He glorifies Christ. John 15, he talks about Jesus. He will testify about me. He just keeps talking about Jesus. He keeps pointing you to the Word of God, which he inspired, so that you can see the Son of God who he is sent to glorify. Finally, Acts 4, when the, speaking of the Spirit, binding his work to the Son, when the man is uh, healed outside the temple and uh, there's a big hubbub about it among the religious elite, Peter says, this happened by the power of the man who you crucified, who was raised from the dead, who's seated at his right hand. This happened by the power of Jesus, by his name this happened. And then next verse, this one, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He's the shibboleth that you must pronounce to pass safely into God's kingdom. You guys know that Old Testament account? The, 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 just like today, uh, when people are trying to learn a, a, a second language, sometimes we can't pronounce, we can't even hear, let alone say, some of the phonetic pronunciations. Well, when there was a war going on in the Old Testament, you can go read about it, they would say shibboleth at the border, and the border guards would kill them because they couldn't pronounce the th- Shibboleth. There is salvation in no other name. 
You have to have the name Jesus, Jesus. He's my hope. Without him, I'm not getting saved. He's the New Testament shibboleth. And the Spirit binds his work to Christ because there's salvation in no one else. Uh, we have seven minutes for questions. That's the end of the biblical theology speed track. Um, what thoughts, comments, questions that might you guys have? Charles. Yeah, we'll wait on the mic so everybody can hear and others can help with the response. Yeah, so uh, let's go ahead and jump into that uh, gifts of the Spirit. <laughs> Is that a period or a question? <laughs> okay. Uh, the reason I said yes, here's my short answer. This is going to do nothing but create more questions. I believe the greatest miracle that the Spirit's ever performed, the greatest gift He's ever given, is human salvation. With man this is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The most impossible thing that could happen is the salvation of a human soul. The Spirit is still doing that. So the greatest miracle... The greatest sign of the Spirit happens every day all over the world. People still get saved. It's not, in my estimation, an argument from silence. It's a direct connection to 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans to say, I believe he is still doing all the other giftings of the Spirit among the church. Primarily, in frontier contexts, if not exclusively, where the gospel has not yet penetrated as confirmation that the gospel is true. Uh, typically, the, the question we, we, we ask most about is the gift of tongues, which Paul puts least priority on, if you just read the, read the text. But he earnestly desires the greater gifts and uh, I've heard cessationists use language, and I've used it, and I, I admit that I'm, I don't like it. I, I, I don't use it anymore. Um, open but cautious, that seems different than earnestly desire. I've heard cessationists talk about themselves, people who believe that the signs of the Spirit are no longer at work in the church age because the canon is closed when the perfect comes. The imperfect will pass away, 1 Corinthians 13. I've heard them use terminology like uh, charismatic with a seatbelt. And uh, that doesn't seem like earnestly desire. I'll stop my comments, but I know it's going to raise nothing but more questions. With there are three times in the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, where the signs of the Spirit were prevalent. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and the Apostles. Moses, 10 plagues. Elijah, fire down from heaven on Carmel. Jesus and the apostles. That's three time periods over about a 2,500-year span where there was a prevalent work of the supernatural, extraordinary. And I think it's out of step with this Scripture to suppose that that will be the norm for every church in all places in all time. I think it's more frontier, confirmation of the gospel, and uh, I don't believe the gift in Acts 2 was hearing. 
I believe it was speaking. I think they spoke other glossolalia, other tongues. They spoke known languages in, I think, in Acts 2. All right, that's going to do nothing but raise more questions. So I'll stop there. Somebody else on any of the saving work of the Holy Spirit? Nobody? All right. Marky R. Okay, Ricky and then Marky. So in sharing the gospel with others as we are encouraged to do, it's not... It's our job to proclaim, hmm. and then it's the Spirit's job to save Amen. and seal. Amen. Amen. Yes, yes, yes. All day, yes. Yeah. I, I was going to kind of say this. Rick stole it, man. He stole it. Uh, just more of an encouragement uh, and a reminder that uh, when you were speaking about the Holy Spirit, um, so often, regardless if you're pastoring or sharing the gospel or yeah. parenting or husbands washing your wives in the word or ministering to your spouses, whichever way, is to rely on the Spirit. And so often, we tend to go off uh, our intellect, our knowledge, um, some sort of convincing arguments, and we should have that intellect and knowledge of Scripture and process how the Holy Spirit works. And just like you read in, I believe it's John 4, you know, mm. talking about when the wind blows, it blows where it wants. Uh, I think so many times as, as believers, we tend to rely on the knowledge and not the Holy Spirit to mm. be praying that the wind does blow whenever we do share or minister in any capacity which we're in in our mundane lives or whatever. Mm. But just, just kind of a reminder and encouragement that when you were saying that, it encouraged my heart to, to don't forget, you know. As, I think of Spurgeon when he climbed to the pulpit with a 13 steps or 15 steps, he'd say, I believe in Holy Spirit. I believe in Holy Spirit. Yeah. I believe in Holy Spirit. Yeah. I believe in Holy Spirit. Yeah. Because I'm about to leave that on for just a second, I'm going to ask you to close this, Mark, very briefly in prayer. I'm about, in, in today's message, uh, John 17, Jesus says that he's binding his work of salvation to the word of the apostolic gospel. That's my way of putting it. Uh, I'm not praying for them only, but for those who believe through their word. That's their witness to Christ. I'm going to preach the gospel as clearly as I can today. And so help me, God, would you pray that the Holy Spirit will save people in light of what you just shared? So just pray briefly, and that'll close our time. Father in heaven, Lord, uh, as we're here before you, Lord, I want to thank you for the gospel, for the word in which uh, we've just heard and received. And Father, I pray for the service this, uh, this morning as uh, our pastor is going to be preaching. Lord, I pray that... Um, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would move within the people, within your people, 
in your people, in a sense, uh, in Jeremiah's day, Lord, just smash the idols. Bring repentance. But also, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will move and save souls. Lord, we have children that need you. Lord, there's going to be people here that need you. Father, I pray you open their eyes, Lord. Just as we've even mentioned, Lord, that, uh, Father, we pray the wind blows. Father, we look to you in all of this, Lord. And, Father, and I pray that we don't turn to the left or the right, but, Lord, we look to you and praise your name for the work you're going to do this morning. Amen.